Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 6th of January, 2023. That makes it the Feast of the Epiphany. This is going to be lecture number 12 in immunoepigenetics. And we're going to have to develop this in, through a couple of lectures, because I'm going to speak about a specific pathophysiology, and that is osteoarthritis. So <clears throat> osteoarthritis, we're going to call it OA, is a degenerative joint disease, and it presents with articular cartilage degradation, subchondral bone sclerosis, and synovial inflammation. Clinical symptoms, of course, include chronic pain, joint instability, general stiffness, and a radiographic joint space narrowing, which can be observed. And that's probably the most common form of arthritis. And it's a leading cause of impaired mobility, particularly in the elderly. The risk factors, therefore, include advanced age, but also importantly, joint trauma, which can occur in any age, obesity, and there is an obesity epidemic, as you know, and there is some component of genetic predisposition. <clears throat> Maybe later we can get into that. Now, of course, sports and accidents-associated trauma can lead, because of what I just mentioned to you, to what's known as post-traumatic OA. And there are, and of course, OA in general is a significant cause of morbidity and physical limitation amongst individuals over the age of 40 to 45. And that's because articular cartilage has no intrinsic repair mechanism. So it's not the basis, basic, uh, medical description of OA. So now let's do some biochemistry. Let's talk about candidate loci. The alterations in TGF-beta superfamily went beta-catenin, notch, and hedgehog pathways all seem to contribute, now those are going to be at the larger uh, scale, to OA. And that's via the upregulation of many different component inflammatory mediators that will lead to cartilage extracellular matrix degradation. And that's going to be a, uh, caused by an increased expression of proteins we've encountered in the past. These, are, of course, are the matrix metalloproteinases, or MMPs. So you also get a protein called disintegrin and thrombospondin. So in fact, there's a general group of enzymes known as ADAMTs. And so this is going to include then the metalloproteinases and thrombospondin, excuse me, motifs. Along with that, you're going to have chondrocyte cell clustering and proliferative apoptosis. 
and or hypertrophic differentiation with an increased expression of some of the genes we've talked about not that long ago, even in this arc of lectures. The RUNCS2, which you know is involved in transcriptional regulation. The matrix metalloproteinase, this one in particular is number 13. The SMAD3 protein, which is a, an adapter molecule for gene expression. We were talking about that recently for FOXP3. And a gene called COL10A1, which we'll talk about later. So let's talk about TGF-beta. TGF-beta is a member of a protein family of over 35 members. If you look at the constellation of events it's involved in, cell proliferation, tissue formation and repair, but also very consistently inflammation. And the family that are most found of the TGF beta family, I told you 35 members, there are only three common peptides that we talk about in the TGF beta subfamily, and those are TGF beta 1 two, and three. And those are going to be expressed differentially according to tissue, but also according to age and a specific pathophysiology, including OA. Now, if you do a knockout of TGF-beta-1 in a mouse model, typically it's lethal because it results in a defective hematopoiesis and an overall endothelial differentiation during embryogenesis. So the deficiency for TGF-beta-2 leads to craniofacial, limb, spinal column, including also lung and inner ear and urogenital abnormalities. TGF-beta-3 knockout mice present with a cleft palate. So it's really interesting, the difference in the three different uh, members of this subfamily, right, the TGF-beta. So what, it, what you can see just from just that brief description, there's no phenotypic overlap between beta 1, 2, and 3, at least in terms of the knockout mouse modeling. Know that that extrapolation in humans is not one that's particularly sound, but we're just talking about KO mice. But that does indicate that there are going to be numerous and non-overlapping functions with TGF-beta isoforms, okay? Probably what at least indicates. Now, TGF-betas are synthesized as large proteins. They are protease-activated or convertase-activated before receptor binding, and they signal via heteromeric complex of transmembrane serine threonine receptors. And those receptors are of either type 1 or type 2. And there, of course, yes, there are accessory proteins associated with those receptors. Type 1 receptors are also, they have another name. They are the activin receptor-like kinases, or ALKs. They're activated by the type 2 receptor and an intracellular signaling cascade that's initiated by carboxy-terminal phosphorylation of receptor-regulated SMAD proteins by the type 1 receptor. Okay, so the two receptors work together. That's why they work as uh, heteromeric complexes. The canonical TGF-beta-1 receptor 
is known as ALK5, but there are other ALKs that have been shown to propagate via their TGF beta signals. So they're not uh, unique to that or just only specific to the beta type 1. In chondrocytes, ALK1 has been identified as the major TGF beta receptor. But activation of ALK5 stimulates the phosphorylation of SMAD2 and SMAD3, while ALK1 okay, activates SMAD1, 5, and also 8 pathway. So you see, this is where we start to get into specific adapters associated with specific receptors. You've heard this line of discussion before in authentic biochemistry. Now, phosphorylated receptor SMADs form heterotrimers with SMAD4, and this complex is transported then directly to the nucleus where it's going to be involved in chromatin retailering. Now, in the nucleus, this complex, in association with enhancers, suppressors will regulate overall global gene expression at those promoter enhancer regions controlled by TGF-beta. So activation of the SMAD23 or the SMAD158 pathway will have, think about the knockout mouse model we were just talking about, they're going to have differential transcriptionally active effects on gene expression, and they're going to regularly, that is upon induction, antagonize each other. Also recall from lecture not that long ago that SMADs are part of the transcriptional machinery, and I'll mention it again, of the Treg transcription factor, FOXP3. Remember those three regions plus the canonical region. Remember the CNS regions we talked about. Now, if you're looking at um, the cartilage, healthy cartilage, you're going to have a nice synovial lining. You're going to have articular cartilage. In osteoarthritis, you're going to get bone remodeling. And that bone remodeling is going to be coming from mesenchymal stem cells. That bone remodeling can then result in osteoarthritis. Same time, in, in, the, in the stages of the disease of OA, you're going to get synovial fibrosis leading to synovitis. Now, that can be triggered by TGF-beta via the SMAD23 co-adapter transcription complex. TGF-beta working through the SMAD158 will lead to cartilage hypertrophy. That can also lead directly to OA. TGF-beta also seems to be responsible for generating osteophytes. Now, osteophytes are also known as bone spurs, and they're very painful in this disease because they're bony lumps that grow on the bone in the spine or around joints and when and they form when at a joint or a bone and when they do that they are further causing an inflammatory response that becomes a direct 
bone and tissue damage that we call arthritis. But osteophytes by themselves, these bone spurs, don't always cause OA. Okay? Sometimes they just stay as osteophytes, causing pain and local inflammation, but not to the level where they reach the uh, full-blown disease. Okay? Now, I should also tell you that TGF works through SMAD23. I should remind you because I already said it to you. And that actually is normal physiology. That gives you cartilage homeostasis and protection of the cartilage. So TGF beta isn't always promoting by any means uh, OA. Okay? It's only when things go wrong. And that's the detail of the series of lectures we're doing. So let's go, let's get into that detail. Primary human fibroblasts express low TGF beta concentrations. How low? Less than a nanogram per ml. Now, when they're at low concentrations, they activate that SMAD 2-3 pathway. But a higher concentration, so go five times to five nanogram per ml will then not stimulate the SMAD23 route, which is the healthy control over cartilage. They're going to stimulate the SMAD158 pathway. And that's going to result in different affinities of TGF-beta for different receptor complexes, such that exposure of the cells to different TGF-beta concentrations will result in differential regulation of gene expression at low versus high concentration of the TGF-beta, okay? So high levels of active TGF-beta in synovial fluid of rheumatoid arthritis patients, now we're up to about 10 nanogram per ml, and OA patients even only at four nanogram per ml, or gout patients at about 8 nanogram per ml, but no significant TGF-beta activity in the synovial fluid of patients with avascular, yet necrosis. So you can see that it's not even consistent that you get that increase in TGF-beta in synovial fluid, you're going to get one of these arthritic or even gout presentations. You can have high levels of TGF beta and synovial fluid, but also only get avascular necrosis, which is, of course, a totally different disease. So, synovial fluid of normal temporomandibular joints does not contain detectable levels of active TGF beta. Remember, to be active, it has to be proteolytically processed. But you get elevated levels, and nevertheless, and they're measured in patients with what's known as temporomandibular osteoarthritis, where TGF-beta is proteolytically finally activated, but in the synovial fluid. And we find associated with that proteolytic activation of TGF-beta in the synovial fluid, elevated levels of proteases. So they're going to be present in that osteoarthritic synovial fluid, sensor stricto. So what can we say to this point? Active TGF-beta levels will be very low or absent in normal articular joints. 
and they're going to be found generally elevated in joint diseases, such as OA. Now, it could be concluded that cells in normal joints are not exposed to high levels of UGF-beta, but that that will change as OA progresses into a disease. The elevated levels of TGF-beta in the OA joint will activate cells that are normally not exposed to high levels of active TGF-beta. And that will then finally result in altered cellular differentiation. And that will contribute directly to the pathogenesis once you have high levels at 5x, for example, up to 5 nanogram per ml TGF-beta. Okay. So... Here's something else about this process. Loading temporarily will activate TGF-beta in the articular cartilage. Remember that TGF-beta, now I'm reminding you, but I only mentioned it very briefly, is stored in high amounts in the articular cartilage matrix, but it's stored in an inactive form. And it's actually part of what's known as a large latent complex. And it's been reported that mechanical loading will activate TGF-beta. So in a stiff matrix like articular cartilage, mechanical force in collaboration with integrin proteins is able to release that TGF-beta form that's going to be the mature form, that means proteolytically processed, from its latency binding peptide. That's no, it's got a name, it's called LAP. And that will confer inhibition of receptor binding of TGF-beta. Now, articular cartilage is a particular tissue that is regularly loaded with its main function. And that regular loading is essential to keep articular cartilage vital. That is, as a healthy cartilage domain. Now, spinal cord injury patients don't load their cartilage recurrently any longer. They lose their cartilage at a faster pace, even than OA patients. So not only load is necessary to keep cartilage healthy, not putting it together, but also you need that active TGF-beta signal. Remember that SMAD 2-3 pathway. Now, chondrocyte-specific loss of SMAD 3 or that ALK5 or the TGF type 2 receptor in the mouse model will all result in differential osteoarthritic development, even at early ages. Okay. Again, this is the small. Uh, this is the mouse SMAD model, where this observation is most often um, found. But you also see the same thing in humans, which have defective SMAD three, and those are in a population that pick up osteoarthritis at a much younger age. So upshot of that is to keep cartilage healthy, you need both regular loading, that is strain loading, and in association with that, you need active TGF-beta signaling, but it's via 
that SMAD3 adapter protein, okay? Not the 158. Now, talk talk more about this because I think we need to we need to fill out this whole discussion, right? I want to do that because when I get into the epigenetic phenomenon, I want to be able to trace this back, this discussion. Checking my time here. This comes from a paper published in the Journal of Functional Morphology and Kinesiology. And I'll put in the show notes, of course. And what it tells me is articular cartilage is a specialized connective tissue. And for those of you that know know this, I, I apologize, but most of us don't. I certainly didn't until I started reading this literature. That specialized connective tissue covers joint surfaces and it facilitates, yeah, the transmission of a load with a low frictional coefficient. And what does that allow for? Friction-free movement. Nevertheless, articular cartilage is a very poor healing potential. I've already mentioned that to you. And it nevertheless also is prone to acute injury and to overall, as you age, degeneration. That whole process then can result in osteoarthritis. And that's considered the, probably the most common biomedical association of cartilage degradation, right? And inflammation. Aging, but regular severe mechanical loading are going to influence articular cartilage homeostasis. And all that's going to be involved in the pathogenesis of also the degenerative joint diseases. So in articular cartilage, chondrocytes, which are only, which are really the only cells that are present in healthy tissue, are surrounded by that extracellular matrix. And that will comprise a fibrillar network of both collagen and non-collagenous proteins immersed in a viscous water-based fluid. Now the fibers, the gels and fibers are differentially oriented and they characterize three zones of the articular cartilage. They are called the superficial zone and, and those have fibers parallel to the articular surface. The intermediate zone with fibers in oblique disposition, and finally the deep zone with vertical fibers perpendicular to the surface of, of the articular cartilage. Okay. So the DZ, the deep zone, ends in a mineralized zone distinguished by what's called a tide mark from the subchondral bone further below that. So the extracellular matrix is composed of this large proteoglycan aggregates like most of them are. And those proteoglycan aggregates, PGAs, are derived from a single hyaluronic acid. And that single hyaluronic acid is also known as hyaluronin. And that has about 100 proteoglycans attached to it. Then you get this agrican, and that's the major proteoglycan of the articular cartilage. And it contains three globular domains, G1 through 3, and it's built up by a core protein attached to a glycosoaminoglycan, or GAG, and of course with several oligosaccharide attending chains. The high tensile strength and low compliance of the articular cartilage 
is, of course, given by those glycosaminoglycans. And they attract cations, and also that results in an attraction of water, of hydration. That results in swelling, but that becomes counteracted by the fibrillar network we just described. So during joint loading, the PGAs, that's the proteoglycan aggregates, are compressed and they permit the distribution of the force on the rest of the joint surface. And what they're doing there is reducing the pressure on the overall articular cartilage. The joint surface is going to be lined with glycoprotein. And that particular glycoprotein surface structure is also got a name. It's lubricin. And that's produced by both the chondrocytes and by the synoviocytes. And finally, it has boundary lubrication properties, which facilitates that low friction we're talking about at the interfacing surfaces of the articular cartilage. So the loss of lubricin influences the functional properties of the synovial joint, and it probably plays a role in the downstream aging pathogenesis of cartilage degeneration. Let me check my time here. I hope you're, I hope you're um, picking up what I'm dropping here for you because I'm trying to give you now much more detail. I'm giving you the detail because it's authentic biochemistry. It's the first of the year and we've got time, right? So let me finish this mechanical loading because I find it fascinating. Mechanical loading of the articular cartilage stimulates the metabolism in the chondrocytes, and it induces the biosynthesis of carbohydrates and polypeptides and lipids to preserve the integrity of that tissue. So you get mechanical signaling, mechanosensory phenomena that modulate gene expression, protein processing, and specific bioenergetic linked biochemical activity. And that will all those changes are going to be resulting in a change in cell mechanics, which is known as mechanotransduction. So what the result is, a compression of the cartilage leads to complex changes within the tissue, including matrix and cell deformation that provides hydrostatic and osmotic pressure fluid flow and an altered matrix content, which means a, a change in content of the polypeptides, lipid, and also carbohydrates associated with those proteins and lipids. And that will be linked to water and ion gradients with a fixed charge density, of course. So all those changes are going to be detected by the mechanoreceptors on the cell surface, and that includes the mechanosensitive ion channels and those integrin proteins I mentioned a few minutes ago. So the activation of all this mechanoreception initiates intracellular signaling cascades in the form of kinases, which leads to tissue remodeling processes. So over time, as a person ages, excessive mechanical, mechanosensing, and the loading itself will influence what genes are expressed, and what the biomechanical readout of that process entails. So you're going to get a change in chondrocyte metabolism. But unlike a physiological stimulation, this will lead to 
quantitative imbalances in both uh, bioenergetics and ATP utilization. So anabolic and catabolic activity. And that means you're going to ultimately get a depletion of matrix components because you're going to always have that a hyperactive matrix metalloprotease. And this is where articular chondrocytes, now we can bring this back to TGF signaling. Because articular chondrocytes show active TGF beta signaling immediately after apoptosis. But that active TGF beta signaling is already starting to decrease within two hours and then absence of a loading. Okay, so it's a process that's very dynamic, very active, but, uh, but superimpose upon that, the amount of loading you're getting, the stress itself, on that mechanosensing mechanism I just went through. On top of that, you're also getting TGF beta, isomorphic distributive alteration of gene expression which can lead ultimately to that inflammatory response linked to the synovial fluid. And that's where we're ultimately going to get to when we describe the whole epigenetic profiling here. Some of which is normal physiological, like many of the things we've been talking about in immunoepigenetics, and some which becomes pathophysiological upon alteration of methylation acetylation. So we're going to stop there. There's a amount of time. Dr. Dan Guerra, the 6th of January, 2023, the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, saying bye for now.